0: Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for being an awesome God, and we thank you that you have given us such things to show us the way to you, Father. You have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a, as a point of reference that we can look to and understand. Father, in the Old Testament, you've given us the temple. And I pray, Father, that we would see you, see your strength and your majesty and your love and the way that we are to approach you, Father, through this temple. Father, I thank you that uh, you will continue to work through us, the church. And I pray, Father, that as we are here uh, in this community, that we would be a light a place for people to see and that we could point the way to you. Father, we uh, just pray that uh, you would just continue to fill us with your spirit. Be here tonight, Father, to say and to do the things that need to be spoken to us. We listen to your voice. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen? Amen. If we're in... uh, first kings chapter 7 we've been going through uh, several of the different things that make up the temple this old testament temple And this temple that is being built here is probably one of the most magnificent of all temples uh probably at least in the uh, quality of the gold and the things that were set up it was a a beautiful beautiful building um i think it was one of the uh uh Wonders of the Ancient World, Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. It was a, a magnificent sight because of uh, the gold that was there. We talked about how uh, if you went into the Holy of Holies place, it was a room that was had gold floors, gold walls, gold ceiling, gold cherubim. Everything in the room was just solid gold all the way around. And we were talking about the special effects of how that would look to have light shining on that gold and it would be kind of weird because there'd be no contrast there and this was a place in the holy of holies inside of the temple was a secret room if you would a special room that uh, god would dwell he sat in the uh, ark of the covenant this box if you would and this was the chair the throne of god this was god's place to inhabit and he was to be the light, and it was, must have been an impressive sight to see all the things that God had. Uh, for the one God, the creator of the universe, for him to call a place home, I guess, it would be rather impressive. And uh, we saw that this was really an extension of when, when God gave Moses the blueprints for the tabernacle. That was a tent, if you would. And uh, inside that tabernacle, there was uh, another set of tents. And in that, they had the Holy of Holies. And when they were wandering around in the wilderness, you could see that they would pick up this tent and take it with them. And that sat in the middle of all of the tribes of Israel. And then the power and the glory of God would inhabit this tent. If you can remember, when they were in the wilderness, they had the uh, cloud by day would be this... Picture of the physical presence of God, and they had a pillar of fire at night. So there was a constant reference point to always look and say, God's in our midst. Now that they go into the promised land after 40 years of wandering around, uh, we saw David try and build a temple, and God said, No, you're not going to do it. And he's saying, We need to have a central location for God so this could be it. And as His son Solomon is building this temple. It's going to be magnificent. And uh, it's a place that uh, we should say, wow, God, we we can see the magnificence. And we talked about the the power of what was there. We said that it was a huge structure kind of in itself to have a 30-cubit, 45-foot-high structure. That's a big building for back then. Three stories high. It had the three rows of windows. Talks about... And in front of this building, if you would, there's going to be these two huge pillars. And we talked about this at the first part of chapter 7. We said one of these pillars was called Jachin. The other one was called Boaz. And these pillars stood even higher at the top of these capitals that were on top of them. The top of those were some odd... 50 cubits or 50 feet five stories it's even higher than the temple and these pillars would be as you're walking in you'd see this thing this jachin when jachin meant you know god establishes and then boaz was god is our strength and you're walking into the building and you're looking for the the visual effects if you would and we know that only certain priests could enter in and the priests were there to perform sacrifices on the altar and then we're going to see another instrument that God told us as the altar is there is this big barbecue pit, if you would. There's a place to slaughter animals. And if you would, the, the temple becomes a huge slaughterhouse. They're slaughtering animals there constantly. They had a, a process of, of, of taking an animal. You'd bring in your goat, your sheep, your oxen, your animal, and you'd say, i want to slaughter it. And then that's what you're doing. The, the priest would be cutting the animal, bleeding it, allowing the blood to flow out of it. They would do certain things. They could boil some of them. They could barbecue some of them. They would do certain things to cook. And then they would give you back most of it. And then you'd take part of it and give it back to the priest on certain sacrifices and certain things. Other sacrifices were a burnt offering, which means you take it and you put it on the, the grill and burn the whole thing all the way down. And you'd take some of the fat once the animal was slaughtered, and you'd burn the fat, and then you'd eat. And so in a sense, if you were there living in Jerusalem, you'd say, I need to get meat for my family. I've got my, my oxen. We're going to take them out to the temple. We're going to slaughter it at the temple, if you would. And we're going to say, Lord, we're giving it to you, and then we're going to give part of it to the priest. That's my gift, my tithe, my offering. And then the priest would eat this and i'm giving that portion to god and then you get to take your part back and eat it with your family and it was a way of eating meat if you would it was a huge slaughterhouse. Uh, i suppose that's what uh, when the river kidron for those that have ever been to jerusalem i've never been there but the river kidron is this little stream if you would it's a little brook that comes out through the uh, in front of the temple and uh, and that's where uh, the blood would flow and they're saying when you're looking at some of the massive amounts of sacrifices that were there it was almost a river of blood and Jesus is there by the river of Kidron there's a river of blood the sacrifices that were given Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice and for us New Testament Christians we sit down and we go we don't need to continuously sacrifice you know the blood of of bulls and goats and sheep anymore to atone for our sins we have jesus the ultimate atonement and that's what it would be to say for me to eat an animal has to die for me to atone for my sins an animal has to die something has to die that's the overwhelming message of the bible something's gonna die to pay for to satisfy to keep you going i think in america we get a very sterile society we forget what death looks like we forget that you know, we go to McDonald's and, you know, we get the hamburger kind of just thrown at us, and we take for granted that, you know, we don't have to look at that little animal and watch it die. And, and it's, it's a process. It's, God wanted it to be that way so that we would always recognize that things live and die to keep us going. And something lived and died to keep us going. It's Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so the, the temple is, a, is a, a place where God is, he's in the midst of it, we're watching some practical things that start to happen, but there's this message of the priesthood as well, that are saying that not only are you just here to kill animals, but these are given as a gift to the Lord, and there's an atonement for the sin, and that's what the priest was there to represent. It was a, a, a process, if you would. So you would come into this temple. You could bring your sacrifice. You'd walk through these huge pillars. It would be an immense thing for you to be in awe of, to go, wow, look at the size of these things. They're huge. It's, that's what a, a pillar would be. It, it's just this, it had a huge capital, and you'd say, how did that big thing get up there? And no wind knocks it over, and you're you're coming into the presence of the Lord, if you would. And then you're going to come in and we're going to find out there's another instrument here called this sea, if you would. It's a huge wash basin is what it's going to be. So if we're in 1 Kings chapter 7, we can see in verse 23, we're picking up the text, if you would. And it says, Now he made the sea of cast metal, 10 cubits from brim to brim, so that's 15 feet, circular in form, And its height was five cubits and 30 cubits in circumference. And under its brim, gourds went around, encircling it ten to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. The gourds were in two rows, cast with the rest. So it was pretty and ornate with more gourds. Talked about the last Wednesday. I don't know. God likes gourds. But verse 25, it says, It stood on 12 oxen. So there's this huge bull, and then there's going to be, this bull was going to sit on 12 oxen. There's three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was three fa- or, um, set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. So there's this huge bull, and then it's got, if you would, three oxen going in each direction, Uh, making a total of 12, one for each tribe, I guess. And then if you would, that almost becomes the the feet, the, the footwork that the basin sits on. So you're getting this huge wash basin, if you would. And it looks pretty that there's, you know, a bunch of oxen around it. It's got some gourds around it. And it says, verse 27, Then he made the ten stands of bronze, And these are going to be separate wash basins. The length of each stand was four cubits, and its width four cubits, and its height three cubits. This was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders which were between the frames were lions, oxen, cherubim. And on the frames there was a pedestal above. And beneath the lions and the oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Now, each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, so you could wheel them around and refill these separate little wash bins, if you would. And its four feet had supports. Beneath the basin were cast supports with wreaths on each side. And and its opening inside the crown at the top was a cubit, and its opening was round like a design of a pedestal. A cubit and a half, and also on its opening there were engravings, and their borders were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. So it's basically showing you a big wash bin that's on wheels, if you would. And it says, And the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel their uh, axles their rims their spokes and their hubs were all cast now there were four supports on the four corners of each stand its supports were part of the stand itself and on the top of the stand there was a circular form half a cubit high and on the top of the stand its stays at its borders were part of it and he engraved on the Uh, plates of its stays and on its borders cherubim lions palm trees according to the clear space on each with wreaths all around he made the 10 stands like this all of them had one casting one measure and one form so they're all uniform and he uh, made 10 basins of bronze one basin uh, held 40 baths Uh, bath is uh, an amount of water uh... About a bathtub full of it. How's that? I guess that's where they get the term. Each basin was four cubits, and on each of the ten stands was one basin. Then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house, eastward towards the south. So basically now you're seeing if you were to walk into this temple... It uh, doesn't describe the altar here for us where they would perform the sacrifices and burn it. But what uh, First Kings is telling us, you're seeing a series of three events. Uh, first, we're seeing the end all result. And we already described what the Holy of Holies was, this room that was all gold. That's where the end is, is where you're going to be into the presence of God. And really, nobody could walk in there. That was for the high priest. He would do it once a year, and that's the only time anyone would ever be in that room. So for him, it must have been a a magnificent sight. But as you're walking in, you, you would come in, and you would bring your sacrifice. A male could do this. and and bringing his sacrifice he'd walk through the pillars and then he'd come into the temple And there he could lay his hands on the sacrifice and as he's laying his hands on the sacrifice they would slice the throat of it that way you're identifying with that sacrifice that's what it tells us in leviticus then the sacrifice could be burned it could be washed and now that's what you're seeing now you're seeing huge wash basins as a as a see that's what you would do there are certain procedures and i don't know if you want to go through them all but sometimes the the priest would have to take a bath sometimes you'd have to clean the animals sometimes you'd have to wash your hands and you're seeing all these five different things for each of the priests to go into and then there was this big huge wash basin and in a sense that's that's a very important picture that you're watching if you would the pillars You go through the gates, you see the altar, then you see the wash basins, and then you're seeing the presence of God. And you're watching, if you would, that it's a message given to us saying that God is telling us that we need to be cleansed. We need to, before we go into the presence of God, there's a washing that has to take place in our life. We just don't walk up to God and say, God, here I am. It's almost you know you take a bath on Saturday night for a church on Sunday type thing I don't know you you uh, you you look at this and you say God uh, uh, there's a cleansing process and what you're doing is you're taking right your, your dirt your filth when you're when you're when you're bathing you're leaving the the dirt behind right you're leaving if you would uh, your burdens behind how's that? Oxen would be a beast of burden I guess that's why they're at the bottom I guess Solomon's taking some liberties here as he's making this this wasn't in the original tabernacle and he's saying hey I'm going to improvise a little bit and I'm going to put some oxen at the base of this big huge wasp basin and then in the tabernacle there was only one and now he's making 10 more on top of the one big one and I guess it's appropriate because he's saying the the ox is a beast of burden you're taking your burdens when you're washing you're laying them aside and you're saying I need to be washed I need to be cleansed Uh, for Jewish society back in the desert days uh, what separated the Jews from most of the pagans was that the Jews were extremely clean people they washed God is instituting that God is instituting many different things for hygiene for hygiene You know, a a lot of the pagan Gentiles never understood hygiene on how to clean or wash your hands before you eat. And God is saying you will wash your hands before you eat. You will be clean. And when you present yourself, take a bath. It's good for you. You know, you think about all the, I don't know, 100 years ago. Oh, you never take a bath. You You get sick when you take a bath. It's bad to take baths. They're bad for you. You don't ever do things like that. That's what most people thought for a long time you know and and the Jews throughout history have survived while rest of the world has gone through the plague and this and that because they're not eating pork which is a very disgusting meat in a lot of senses it's very unhealthy to eat pork and they said we don't do that a lot of diseases were transferred through the pig and they said we don't touch that God says that there's clean animals and unclean animals and they separated themselves and they also had a level of hygiene they took care of the body they were washed and so you're watching, if you would, where God is saying, in my temple, we're going to sit down there and be clean. We're going to be holy. You've got to do something to present yourself before God. You just don't slop your way in. And we have the same concept, that there's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us, it cleanses us, and we must be born again. We believe in being baptized. You're going down into the water. You're coming up out of the water and you're watching the immersion process start to take place so you're seeing the temple it's being instituted god's on this end he's my strength my pillar and he established me i walk through here i have to be cleansed and i want to be able to come into the presence of god and so it's a interesting thing on what they're telling us is inside of the temple they're they're not telling us all the things in kings they're really telling us the 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 holy of holies they're telling us about the pillars and they're telling us about um, this wash basin and interestingly enough it's all because it's from this guy Hiram who's building it so if you would let's continue to put a few pieces of the puzzle here verse 40 it says now Hiram made the uh, basins of the uh, and the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. The two pillars and the two, two bowls and the capitals which were on top of the two pillars and the two uh, networks that covered the two bowls uh, of the capitals which were on top of the pillars. So he's saying this guy Hiram who was a handy-dandy crafty guy, he finished all this work. And it says more things: in the four hundred pomegranates of the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals, which are on top of the pillars, in the ten stands of the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the pails and the shovels and the bowls, even all these utensils which Hiram made for King Solomon in the house of the Lord were of polished bronze. So Hiram here is a, a man that is skilled in working with bronze. All these things are bronze. And Solomon left all the utensils unweighed. Couldn't even weigh them all. Why? Because they were too many. The weight of the bronze could not be ascertained. And then it says, verse 48, And Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, and the lampstands, five on the right side and five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary of, the, uh, of pure gold, and the flowers and the lamps uh, and the tongs of gold, and the cups and the snuffers and the bowls of the spoons and the firepans of pure gold and the hinges both of the doors in the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house, that is, of the nave, of gold. Thus all the work King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought the things dedicated by his father David in silver and gold, and the utensils he put them in the treasuries of uh, of the house of the Lord." So it's interesting. Now they're finishing it off. They're getting it all together. They're finishing off the construction. Uh, this guy Hiram uh, is uh, uh, the uh, craftsman that did the bronze, and he had other guys, I think, do the gold. I had uh, I had Greg tell me something uh, I didn't know last week. I uh, Greg's the other uh, bald headed guy around here, getting a couple of them around now, but. Uh, He's uh, usually was sitting up here. He's an interesting character because uh, if you get to know Greg, he uh, was an assistant pastor anyway, uh, pastor to church at a Baptist church. And uh, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know if we have any Masons here uh, in, with us, but uh, uh, he took a stance against the Masonic Lodge. And uh, most people don't understand what the Masonic Lodge is. And I know we have a couple Masons in our church or people that used to be Masons. But uh, basically, he, uh, he preached a sermon against Masons and they kicked him out the next day. He was gone, fired him on the spot. And I guess the Masons are a secret society, if you would. And their basic belief is this guy, Hiram Abiff is his name, but Hiram here he was the guy that had all the secrets of god he built the temple and everything had to go from hiram and uh, he was telling me that the uh, masons when they greet one another they go uh how is uh how is the son of the uh of a uh poor widow's how's the poor widow's son or something that's what masons say to each other and then that uh, means that they have a secret little handshake type thing i i don't, I don't know but uh they somehow or another have this feeling that Hiram Abiff was a man full of secret knowledge and he passed on this knowledge because he was the one that knew everything and did everything about the temple. And so there's a secret society, a special society of the Masons that have secret information that's handed down through Hiram Abiff. And if you really want to know the truth about everything, then you got to be a Mason. And uh, uh, basically, I don't... Particularly by that there's into uh, any secrets out there. I think everything's right in front of us, pretty obvious. Everything you need to know. Um, but if you want to run around with a little hat and drink beer with guys because you got secret knowledge, then God bless you. I guess I don't know. But it's interesting. Greg can tell you all these stories. Uh, he seems to think that they were pretty uh, a wrong group of people. But uh, I don't know. He was. In the Baptist church, there's a lot of them, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, interesting story. You can talk to Greg if you want to hear more about it. He's not here tonight, so I can rat on him. But uh, let's go to chapter 8 and uh, start from there. It says, Then Solomon uh, assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes of the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem. To bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. So if you would, now it's rather simple. Solomon's going to say, I built this whole place. The only thing we're lacking? God. We've got to put God now in the midst of this place. So he's going to start. This is going to be the grand opening ceremony, if you would, of the temple. And uh, he's going to bring the ark in, which David had and Uh, He's got to bring it up and have the priests and go through this whole entourage of their grand opening ceremony. And it's telling you what happened here. It says, And all the men of Israel, verse 2, assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast. So all the men there, everyone's there. In the month, uh, the ethanim, which is the seventh month, then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the Ark of the Lord. So this is the actual place right out of the tabernacle that the Lord was supposed to seat. They were supposed to cover it when they moved it. They put it on long poles so no one could touch it. And if anybody ever did touch it, there was one guy who tried to touch it and he was struck dead on the spot. And nobody touches God, you know. And this was uh, nobody was supposed to look at it. Only the priest was supposed to look at it. So they're carrying this up in a very holy, special way. Verse 4, again, it says, And they brought up the ark of the Lord uh, in the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, men and women, who were assembled to him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary. So the guys are carrying it in uh, to the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. So if you can remember, the cherubim were these huge angels. They had their wings spread out. It was a daunting force to look at. And now they're taking this box and they're placing it right between the cherubim's wings as they're touching and uh, it says, verse 7, "...for the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles, so these poles that they carried it on, were so long that the ends of the poles could not be seen from the holy place." So these guys couldn't enter in. They just had to carry it in and use the poles to get it in there. "...before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. Uh, they are there to this day." Not today, but when they wrote this. Uh, Verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. There the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So, this box, inside the box has got the two stones, the two uh, uh, things of the Ten Commandments. And uh, that's what's in there. It doesn't say there's the manna is no longer in there and there's no longer the rod of Aaron. Two other things that were supposed to be in it were near it, but anyway. And it came about when the priest, verse 10, uh, came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So here, God's coming in and inhabiting the place. And listen to this, it says, verse 11, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here, they're putting this piece in and all of a sudden, you know, the glowing glory of God is bright and people are going, "Whoa, man, God, you're you're huge, you're immense. We're seeing the glory of the Lord. This is the capstone of the whole building. It's there, it's saying, the guys couldn't even stand there, they're looking at it because the glory of the lord filled the house of the lord so it's interesting god is putting his what his stamp of approval and he's saying i will be here bam i'm here he's there in presence in in a tangible way they're they're seeing something they're reacting to something it's not just a, a feeling this is everybody saying there's something intense here god's in the midst of this temple and then Solomon says, okay, Lord, you're right behind me. It says, and then the, the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel. So Solomon's there before the temple, and he's now turning about to the people, probably right there in between the pillars of uh, Jachin and Boaz. And, uh, and while the assembly of Israel was standing there, verse 15, he said, blessed be the Lord. So now Solomon's going to give us a long speech. We'll go through it, but it's worth it. It's just like we're there on opening day of the temple. He said, Blessed be the Lord, verse 15, and the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth by my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son Solomon, who's speaking, who shall be born to you, he shall build the house for my name, this glorious temple. Now the Lord has filled, fulfilled his word, which he spoke, for I have risen in a place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, which He made for our fathers, which He brought them from the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly. Um, to the servants who walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant my father David that which thou hast promised him. Indeed, thou hast spoken with thy mouth and has fulfilled it with thy hand as it is this day. He's saying, God, you're good. You've kept your promises. Here we are today doing everything that you talked about. Verse 25. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel. This is a bold prayer. Keep with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him. God, keep your word. Saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be confirmed. God, keep your word. Gutsy thing to say to God. But it's a right thing to say to God. You're allowed to say, God, there's promises in your word. I'm I'm trusting in them. I need you to keep them. God God keeps his word. His word shall never return void. And Solomon's saying, God, you said if we're going to do this, we're doing it now. Now, okay, Lord, we're here. So he says, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? He's even asking, can anybody even build a place that God, the, the creator of the universe, is going to dwell on? And he knows that this is not the only place that God is. Is right there in his temple that he built. Verse 27 again, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication. My request, that's what a supplication is. O Lord, my God, to listen, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today, that thine eyes may be opened toward this house uh, night and day, toward the place of which thou hast said, quote, my name shall be there. So, to listen, that's what we're here for, God. We're coming into the temple so you can hear us. To listen to the prayer which thy servants shall pray towards this place. And listen to the supplication of the servant and thy people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and act and judge thy servants, uh, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his um, own head and justifying the righteous uh, by giving him according to his righteousness. Then thy people Israel It says, when thy people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee, if they turn to thee again and confess thy name and pray and make supplication to thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sins of thy people Israel. So here he's saying, hey, we're here to tell you, Lord, uh, and, and pray to you. And if we ever do anything wrong, the temple is a place of forgiveness and restoration. God, we're counting on you. We could go out to battle. We're going to lose in battle. And Solomon is understanding. We're going to be defeated on the battlefield because we separate our heart from God. So, Lord, please forgive. Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of the people Israel and bring them back to the land which thou didst give to their fathers. Verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee and have prayed toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou dost afflict them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and thy people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on the land which thou hast given thy people for an inheritance. So thirdly we can see that the temple was a place of instruction and even by just the physical things of it there's lessons involved on our approach to God. So the temple is to there for for instructional purposes. And then it's there as we're appropriately Uh, doing the appropriate things, then God is going to bless us with blessings of rain. Verse 37. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all thy people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own Heart And spreading his hands towards this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose hearts thou knowest, for thou alone dost know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou hast given to our fathers. Also, concerning the foreigner who is not of thy people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for thy name's sake, so there's inclusion of other people into God, it's not strictly Jewish. Verse 42, For they will hear of thy great name in thy mighty hand and of thy outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards his house, hear thou in heaven, thy dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to thee in order that all the peoples of the earth may know thy name to fear thee and to do thy people Israel and uh, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name when thy people go out and to battle against their enemy by whatever way thou shalt send them, and they may pray to the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen in the house which I have built for thy name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So you go out to battle. You want to pray, Lord, we pray we'd be victorious. We want you to be with us. Hear that prayer. I like that term. Maintain their cause cause interesting term verse 46 but when they sin against thee for there is no man who does not sin and thou art angry with them and dost deliver them to an enemy so that they take uh, them away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near if they if they take uh, thought in the land Uh, For which they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to thee in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. So you confess your sin before the Lord. If they return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to thee toward their land, which thou hast given to their fathers the city which thou hast, I have built for thy name, then hear their prayer and their supplications in heaven, their dwelling places, and maintain their cause. That's an interesting phrase. So, going out to battle, you can say, Lord, maintain my cause. Lord, I'm taken captive. I'm in trouble. I'm trapped. Lord, I can pray to you, and it's maintain my cause. I find that interesting. Because we always want to have our lives in line with God's will. And I suppose so long as we're in the will of God, there are things that we do. And what he's saying is saying, Lord, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm, I've got a job. I've got a business. I've got uh, you know, something I'm trying to accomplish. And this is what you've laid on my heart, Lord. And I think Solomon's saying it's a fair request to say, Lord, maintain my cause. The cause that I'm fighting for, to stop drunk driving, to stop this, to whatever. We all have a cause. And it's honorable to say, Lord, I, I, there's, there's a purpose, a place, a battle in front of me. And I want to I say, Lord, maintain my cause. And it, it's something that the Lord does here. He understands that we're in struggles. We're in war. Right? What an ugly thing to pray for. God, we're going to go out and slaughter some people here. I'm going to go fight and wipe out some people and kill them. Maintain my cause. Can you think of a more hideous thing to pray for? That we'd be victorious in a battle with swords swinging and we just want to slaughter all them Philistines and chop off their heads. And Lord, I'm asking you to bless me in that process. is Isn't that weird? I think it's one of those things you'd just rather go do and not pray about. I don't know. But then again, when you're out on the battlefield, where do you want the Lord more than ever before to say, Lord, this is what I'm doing? In Solomon, in his opening prayer, saying, Lord, maintain my cause because I'm going to war. Why not for me, but because you're directing me to take care of sin or take care of wicked people. And obviously, God's in the midst of saying, I'm going to bless certain people in war and I'm going to have Israel be defeated in war if they're not going to be true to God. And so the term is, maintain my cause. I just think that's interesting. And even if you're taken captive, you're saying, Lord, I I have a purpose. I'm trying to accomplish something. and, and And I need to repent and come back to you. So maintain their cause. Interesting. And verse 50 And forgive thy people who have sinned against thee and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against thee. And make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are thy people and thine inheritance which thou hast brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace that thy eyes may be open to the supplications of thy servant, into the supplication, the requests of thy people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to thee. For thou hast separated them from all peoples of the earth as thine inheritance, as thou didst speak through Moses thy servant, when thou didst bring our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord God. And it came about that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven. Interesting to note his position. He's kneeling, he's down, his hands are raised, and he's he's looking up and saying, God, I'm talking to you. God, I'm like this. His body language, his position in prayer showing that he's reverent before the Lord, and he's reaching out towards God and saying Lord I need to be there I do think it's appropriate sometimes to be in worship and to put yourself in the right position to worship the Lord sometimes it's important to kneel sometimes it's important to sit sometimes it's important to stand sometimes raising your hands can do a psychological I hate to say that word it's it's a mental state of mind as you're presenting yourself before the lord i know it's a controversial thing a lot of people come to church and they go they go oh are you one of those radical churches that people raise their hands there's a lot of people when they come into church and they see a couple people raise their hands they panic and they boogie out the door they go i can't believe there's people out there raising their hands before the lord it's a rather daunting intimidating thing. I think sometimes it separates people and says, "Hey, we're 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 here to say, Lord, I I want to reach out, touch you and and lift my hands to you." And I know when I started coming to church, I was coming from the Marine Corps, and I'd sit down and I'd look at this and I first off I wouldn't sing, I wouldn't do anything. I'd be like, "Yeah, right. Okay, we'll get the music over. Let's go to the Bible study, you know." And then uh it took me a long time to be able to start to open up my mouth and to worship the Lord, and to sing. And that's what our design and intent of our worship is: that we would sing with, with the worship team. The worship team is not a band that we are the audience, and 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 we are are listening to the band perform. The, the The worship team is facilitating us in worship, and it's allowing us to turn around and to say to say. I want to sing, and the audience of our church is God. He's the one that listens to our praises. So when we lift up, we're not singing to the worship team. We're not. We're joining with the worship team to lift up our hands, and we want to say, "Lord." And I can remember, it's just one of those things when you start to sing, you go, "Wow!" It's like the presence of the Lord's over you, and you're starting to say, "This is a weird dynamic. I'm worshiping. This is my." participation in my spiritual walk to come into church and to worship god so i want to sing to god i don't want to just read a book with hymns and la 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 we deliberately try to step away from that but there's another whole level sometimes and i'm just challenging some people if you sit down and raise your hands and worship there's just you're going wow this is electrifying i feel like i'm participating at a stronger level to give my heart and my soul as i'm kneeling and sometimes your body position speaks a lot for your heart you can't sit down and says lord i'm worshiping and you're like yeah yeah get this part over with and you say i it's a challenge as us as a church to enter into worship solomon here he's saying as you know look at your king king solomon what is he doing he's bending his knee to the God, the living God. And you go, what what brings my king to my knees? My God. And sometimes it makes a statement to the people and it makes a statement to ourselves when we can sit down. It's just something you throw out there. It's one time in the Bible you, you're watching a good example of it. You're watching his position. And he's making a statement. And he's saying, God, I want to kneel on my knees before you. I'm humble before you. And I want to reach out to my hands and say, Lord, I'm asking you to be here and to come into my life. So verse 55, and he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Wow. Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord and Solomon offered the sacrifices of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord 22,000 oxen. That's a slaughterhouse. And 120,000 sheep. That's a slaughterhouse. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord and on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord because there he offered the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offerings for the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. So they, they had to throw an extra barbecue pit in there. They had so much stuff going on. So Solomon observed the feast at that time, and it was a feast. Everyone got to eat at the end of the day. And all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days. So they're supposed to have a seven day, a week long celebration of dedication. And then you can see, and I love this, they turn around and then seven more days, even 14 days. So it's like we're going to go out and have a week long church service. And at the end of the week, they say, hey, that was so much fun. Let's do it again. Let's have another week. This is a blast, isn't it? And I think when God and his temple and all the things that are parts of it, that's got to be the underlying picture. You got to go to church and say, man, I love being there. God wants you to, to come into church and to enjoy being in church. It's a blast. It's a celebration. You're raising your hands before the Lord. You're feeling clean. You're feeling pure. You're feeling, you know, guilt-free to say, Lord, wow, I love you. And you dance in the spirit and you're excited and God is filling the place with his power and his might and the majesty of God and the Shekinah glory, the amber. Whoa! You're just seeing everybody saying, let's do it again, seven more days. This is fun. And so they're having a big day, and on the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. Everyone's walking away and saying, man, God is just awesome. I love it. And so you watch the picture here. Solomon is there. He's making his prayer. He's sacrificing 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. You're watching the power of the Holy Spirit come down and to touch the people. And the glory is there. And you go, oh, Lord, I wish I was there on opening day. That must have been a, a party. Everybody's just walking away. And you go, that must have been a good day to be alive, to, to sit down and to say, grand opening of the temple was a good day to be there you know and in the sense uh, we have the exact same things there's a pattern here that we can have in ourselves paul tells us we're running late on time but he says do you not know that you are the temple of the holy spirit there's there's our temple god wants to do the exact same process inside of us we come before the lord we make a sacrifice and we say, Lord, I want to lay down my life. We can sit down there. We have that prayer that Solomon prayed. We said, Lord, we're sinners. We're all sinners. You're watching confession. You're watching saying, Lord, I want to take you to task on your word. Your promise of your word is that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we'll have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life so you're going to say god i'm going to take you to task on your word lord i'm going to say you know uh, be there for my cause you're going to sit down and say lord I, i need to seek forgiveness and as we come before the lord and we get on our knees with outstretched hands then the power of the spirit comes in and fills our life and we can say this temple this body of flesh it's not very pretty but god says i'll inhabit it I'll dwell in it and you will be my people. God wants to inhabit you. The same thing. And he'll bring about joy unspeakable in your life. And he'll say, man, if you just open up to me, you'll have the same thing. And you'll say, God, I'll give you seven days. And, God, and then you'll turn around and say, I'll just do it seven more times. It's a time of feasting and celebration and joy. It's a pleasure. And God always wants it to be that way. When you come before the Lord, it's a party. It's, it's, it's a celebration. It's not a drag. It's not a burden. You leave your burdens behind. You're washed. You're cleansed. You're celebrating the goodness of the Lord. And you got the wrong heart. If you go, man, i got to go to church again. I have to show up. Oh, my mother made me? Man, you're wrong. The desire is to sit down and to say, Lord, it, this, is, this is where it's happening. Everything else stinks. I want to be where it's happening. I want to be in the presence. I want to feel that presence of God. I want to be able to say, Whoa, God, you know, the intense glory of God, the Shekinah glory coming into your life. And it's the same principles for us in a sense, but we in the New Testament take it to a new level to say, This, this body of flesh is the temple. And God wants to inhabit it, and he wants to be there if we open up and ask the Lord to come in. I'd love to read chapter 9 because God answers Solomon in his prayer, but we'll save that as a cliffhanger to entice you to come back next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.